Well, last Sunday, like many of you, I came home from, from our church gathering and, and I heard this shocking news that, that NBA legend Kobe Bryant, uh, along with his uh, daughter and seven other people, had been, been killed in a helicopter accident. And, and I probably, along with a, a lot of you, I spent some time on Sunday and, and throughout the week uh, just, just watching over uh, the course of this week as people came together in, in grief. And so there's, of course, in the sports world, the basketball world, this was such a significant loss. And, and many people, I mean, I had people texting me just how affected they were by this. And, and there was just a sense of grief and loss that, that felt like it was shared by many, many people and what I particularly noticed was the way that people, uh, just people on TV in general, they were talking about how they wanted, how this put, put their lives in perspective and how they wanted to be reconciled to people that they had grudges with, uh, that, that they, they saw in the fragility of life and losing someone um, that they loved and admired, they wanted to make some changes in their life, particularly with people that they had been holding on to something like a grudge with, so that they wanted to be forgiven and they wanted to ask for forgiveness and they wanted to forgive and and come together and just people openly confessing the um, the foolishness of the things they 'd been holding on to and and it was pretty tremendous to see this and and like like we've seen with other national tragedies and of course this we don't we're, we don't really need to measure the scale of the importance of these things when when so many people are affected uh, as as we have been this week you can see that this loss uh, in many ways unites people it unites us together but but we we ask the question what what eventually happens? What happens next in, in this process as, as we begin to move on? Uh, we see that our cultural and our political and our social differences, they begin to move back to the forefront of our minds and our lives. And soon enough, everyone is arguing on Facebook again, right? And and we'll we'll certainly see that uh, this year, right? Our <laughs> our president is uh, undergoing a hearing uh, to see if he'll be impeached or not. It's a very divisive thing. I think that's very understated. <laughs> uh, and and then this is an election year, and and so we're going to continue to see division and conflict, and and in many ways it feels like the the country that we're a part of. That, that it's more sharply divided than it's ever been. And, and you hear many people saying things like that. Yet, if you know the history of our country, um, we've experienced even, even worse divisions. The worst, uh, the worst war that we've had in our country's history was the one within our own borders. The most devastating losses of life as North fought against south and and throughout our history and really throughout our civilization uh, there's we've been marked by conflict we've been marked by division who do we belong to and who are we against who is us and who is them right this defines so much of our civilization's history 
And, and then here we are today. For, for those of us today, we recognize, or we should recognize, that we don't just think about these things as Americans. We don't just think about these things as citizens of the United States. Uh, if we follow Jesus, we have an allegiance that transcends our allegiance to our country or to our borders or to our citizenship. We have one king, and his name is Jesus. And so in his kingdom, we are united. We're united with other followers of Jesus. And those bonds, that unity, transcends our national identity, our political identity, our, our racial identity, any identity that we might have, no matter what's going on around us politically, socially, culturally, Jesus is our king and we are united in him. And I think most of us who, who have put our faith in Jesus, we would say, yes, I believe that theologically. Um, but, but the real question is, how do we live that out practically? What does it really look like in our everyday lives? And, and, and then you start to ask questions like, what would it really look like for us to be a united church? Uh, and, and of course, that can mean for us here today, the town church, but what would it look like for us to be a united church in Eureka and Hubble County? And then you start to go out from there. What would it look like for us to be a united church? People who are knit and bonded together by our faith in Jesus, and we're walking together day by day as we follow him. And I think most of us would say we long for this. We yearn for that kind of unity and that kind of connection and that kind of closeness with other followers of Jesus. But again, how do we live it out? What does it look like in our lives? And then how do we deal with these differences as they come up? Because they're going to. They always do, these differences that we that we have, and, and then how do we live as a united church, as a united people, in the midst of a world that looks at things very differently, that is committed to division, we could say, uh, us versus them? How do we live united in spite of our differences in a culture that, that is very committed to its differences? So to help us with these big questions, I think they're big questions, we're going to spend most of the year uh, in, in chunks and pieces, not all at once, but most of the year looking at a book of the Bible that is written to a church community facing many of these same questions that we are facing today. So the letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Corinth, it's a letter that we call 1 Corinthians. This is going to be our text, our place that we spend time in the scriptures over the next several months, really close to the end of the year probably. And, and just this is going to be a relentless confrontation of controversial issues. Just again and again and again, we're going to come up against things that divide us. But underneath is this call to unity in Jesus. So I want to begin by reading the first 10 verses of 1 Corinthians. If you're using one of the Bibles from the table in the back, it's on page 952. It'll also be on the screen. This is 1 Corinthians, beginning of verse 1 
through verse 10. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now, already having heard from your word. You've spoken to us and you've called us into this united faith following your son, Jesus. And we ask that as we begin this journey through this letter, that you would call us into unity and that you would show us uh, our allegiances, where they have become fragmented, where they have become disordered. And that you would call us to a united faith in our King Jesus. And that we would be a truly unified church, a truly unified body, celebrating the different ways that you have made us, the different giftings that you've given to us. And that we would come through this more mature, strengthened, and more able to beautifully display the good news of Jesus through the words that we speak to each other, about each other, and the ways that we live, and that we could be an amazing display of Jesus' gospel in the flesh here in Eureka, here in Humboldt County. And we trust that you will do this work in us as we commit ourselves to you, that you are the faithful God, the one who will do it. So help us now as we come to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin here in this letter, I want to use a really simple framework to get us started. So today is going to be more of an introduction, a broad overview of the whole letter, and then we'll really start digging in next week into the specifics. So for today, we're going to ask three questions Uh, Like any good detective would, who, why, and what? Who were the Corinthians? Why did Paul write this letter? And what should we expect to learn from 1 Corinthians? So first, who were the Corinthians? And, And the best thing to remember in 1 Corinthians is that it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church community in the city of Corinth. And this letter begins like any other letter with a greeting. And if you just use email or texting or whatever 
try to try to do this. It's it's old fashioned, but you can actually say hello, so and so. You can say their name. Like a lot of times, you just like blast the question that you have. There's no hey, how's it going? I hope you're doing well. It's just like what is going on now? What time are we meeting? So. You know, just try this in an email. Imagine yourself being a polite, kind person, as Paul is here, to the church of God that is in Corinth. And like any letter, it helps us to know. Have you ever read, like, historical letters? Uh, maybe the letters of Theodore Roosevelt or something, you know? And it, it helps to know, to understand the letters when you know who is involved. Who wrote the letter and who's receiving the letter and what's their story. So, so we're going to try to get to know the parties involved here a little bit. Uh, first, who, who are these Corinthians that the Apostle Paul is writing to? Let's get an idea of the place and the people and the culture that Paul is thinking about as he writes this letter. So, so we'll go back a little bit, the history of Corinth uh, Corinth is a city that is located in the Greek province of Achaia. I think we have a map. Is it up there? Cool. It probably doesn't mean a lot to you because you're probably not real well-versed in Greek geography, but there it is. That's Corinth on the map there. Um, a really distinctive feature about this city is that it, the whole city is, uh, sits at the foot of this giant um, limestone mountain or mound uh, called Acro, the Acro-Corinth. Uh, and so it's a really distinctive feature there in the city. The whole city is kind of defined by its relationship to this mountain. Um, the city of Corinth had existed for several hundred years as a Greek city uh, before it was destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC because they were like, we're not into you being our bosses, Rome. So they resisted Rome and Rome did what it did when people did that. They just wiped them out. So like totally wrecked the city, tore it all the way down. And then Julius Caesar refound he refounded the city in 44 BC and, and repopulated it with like retired army veterans and uh, freed slaves and, and just sort of said, here's, we're going to reestablish this city as a Roman city, a Roman colony. And then Corinth quickly rose into prominence again and became one of the most important cities in the Roman Empire, and it had this really strategic location uh, as far as trade and uh, the economy went. So, um, the way that Corinth is located, it was kind of a narrow neck of land called an isthmus, right? Like Panama. You guys know the isthmus of Panama? It's a really hard word to say, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, it sort of divided Greece, uh, and Corinth is located right here on this little thin part of land. And so to the east and the west, there were uh, the Aegean Sea and the Ionian Sea, and the distance between these two bodies of water was less than six miles. Uh, and so they created this paved road uh, that, so that sailors, instead of going around this dangerous, um, what do they call that, a cape? Right, the the merchants would pull up the ship to Corinth, and they would they would just transport sometimes the entire ship 
don't know how they did this, but uh, they had some kind of carts or logs or whatever, and they would just move the entire ship or the contents of the ship across this road to the other side of the isthmus. Uh, and, and then they could avoid the danger of losing their cargo. And so Corinth really became this boomtown because of this location that it had and these geographic features. And so because it was a center of trade, it was populated and it was regularly visited by a diverse group of people from all walks of life. So because of this, uh, theologian John Pollock, he says... Corinthians were rootless, cut off from their country background, drawn from races and districts all over the empire. And so it was kind of a transient culture. And and those of you who have lived in larger cities, you see this happen, right? People move into cities to build their careers, uh, to go to school, and people are always moving in and out of cities. Our culture here is a little different, uh, but we experience the same kind of thing, people moving in and out. But, but you kind of have to imagine more of a city like New York or Los Angeles or something like that. And in this city, because of its diversity, because of all the people moving in and out, the city contained a variety of religious faith communities, the Jewish faith being one of those, and, and so the, the per, a person who lived in Corinth, they, they basically had unlimited options when it came to uh, what kind of religion or what kind of belief system do I want to be a part of. So the huge religious pluralism, all kinds of temples and statues. Uh, at the top of the Acro Corinth, there was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, which at one point had over 1,000 temple prostitutes uh, that was part of the, the worship uh, situation there. So, uh, so just a very diverse religious community. Uh, and uh, David Garland, he says that as a cosmopolitan city, Corinth was a religious melting pot with older and newer religions flourishing side by side. In other words, they could choose from a great cafeteria line of religious practices. So this is, this is just starting to give us a, a brief picture. Here's who these people are that Paul is writing to. This is the place, the culture. Ray Roy Siempa, he kind of sums up this picture and says that Corinth was prosperous, cosmopolitan, and religiously pluralistic, accustomed to visits by impressive traveling public speakers, and obsessed with status, self-promotion, and personal rights. From a Jewish or Christian viewpoint, as with any pagan city, its inhabitants were marked by the worship of idols, sexual immorality, and greed. And in reading that, you kind of think, that doesn't really sound that different from uh, our situation that we live in today in relationship to our own culture. Uh, Many similarities. This is the city, Corinth, that Paul visits on his second missionary journey probably around the year A.D. 51. And in Acts chapter 18, we saw, this is, this is really the heart of where this series came from, is we went through our whole series through the book of Acts, and we saw uh, you know, the last half of Acts is about 
uh, the Apostle Paul going with partners in ministry and planting churches all around the Roman Empire. And, and I thought, well, wouldn't it be neat to sort of dive into the life of one of those churches as they were planted? And, and what did it look like for this new church of young immature believers to grow in their faith in Jesus, facing many of the same things that we are. And, and this is what happens in, in Acts chapter 18. Paul comes to Corinth, and he's laboring to share the good news of Jesus in this city that at this point is between, somewhere between 80 and 100,000 people. And we see at one point in Acts 18 that Paul is very discouraged because he's getting a lot of opposition uh, from, from all sides, particularly from, from the Jewish religious leaders who are saying, you're, you're, doing, you're teaching something that we, we don't like. You're sort of undermining the Jewish faith and you're talking about this Jesus in a way that's inappropriate. And we saw this happen to Paul often throughout the book of Acts. And he's very discouraged because of the opposition that he's getting And in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And we saw after this that Paul ends up staying in this city for around 18 months, which at that point is the longest time period he'd ever spent in any one place on his missionary journeys, and he, he comes alongside of this really dynamic duo, uh, this wife and husband, Priscilla and Aquila, and, and many others. They partner in gospel ministry in Corinth with that, that driving uh, encouragement from the Lord. I have many people in this, in this city who are called by my name, and so they're there for the people of Corinth to bring them the good news of Jesus. So we now sort of have a picture of these people in Corinth. So next, let's ask the question, why did Paul write this specific letter? Now, we can determine through other uh, places in Scripture, other documents, that Paul wrote this letter two to three years after he left Corinth. He continues um, on his church planting missionary journeys, he goes to the city of Ephesus where he's there for about three years. And as he's corresponding with different people in the Corinthian church, and as he hears reports about them from other people, Paul can tell that there are a lot of problems going on within this church in Corinth. And so he writes this letter to address these problems. We, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. This is actually the second letter that Paul has written to this church. We don't have a record of this letter, but we, he says that he addressed them particularly concerning sexual immorality and associating with people who are practicing those things. Uh, and, and he's starting to address the problems that are cropping up in their church community. We also know from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, that Paul has already sent his associate, his partner Timothy, to Corinth to check in on them, see how it's going, to encourage them to remain faithful to Jesus, give them some guidance, and Timothy comes back and is able to share with Paul, this is what's going on. But the situation in Corinth continues to deteriorate, and so Paul writes this letter, 1 Corinthians, to give guidance, to give correction to the people that he loves and that he cares deeply 
about. And now we come to the real subject. This is the, the meaty stuff that we're all excited about. What were the actual problems that were going on in Corinth? And, in, and rather than giving you my own summary, I'm just going to read from this theologian, Craig Blomberg. I actually read this to Dallas while we were uh, reading in bed one night because it was so, it was so funny. Um, just like, here's, here's what was going on in Corinth. This is you know, that's how exciting our marriage is that I read commentaries to Dallas while we're sitting in bed. Uh, so here's Craig Blomberg. He says, imagine a church racked by divisions. Powerful leaders promote themselves against each other, each with his band of loyal followers. One of them is having an affair with his stepmother. And instead of disciplining him, many in the church boast of his freedom in Christ to behave in such a way. Christians sue each other in secular courts. Some like to visit prostitutes. As a backlash against this rampant immorality, another faction in the church is promoting celibacy, complete sexual abstinence for all believers, married or unmarried, uh, as the Christian ideal. Still other debates rage about how decisively new Christians should break from their past disagreements about men's and women's roles in the church, add to the to the confusion, as if all this were not enough. Alleged prophecies and speaking in tongues occur regularly, but not always in a constructive fashion. A significant number of these immature Christians do not even believe in the future bodily resurrection of Christians. And I would add, they some of them don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus as well. Uh, just from this short description, and that doesn't even really get into all of the controversies going on, it's, it's not hard to see why Paul felt that he needed to write to this church that he had planted. He's like, I just left, things were fine, and what happened? Like, this, this is not good. Uh, and they're in danger of splitting apart, and he doesn't want that to happen, and and that's what we need to see is the real heart of this letter, that Paul loves the people of Corinth. He loves the church of Corinth. He wants what is good for them. We often forget uh, when we read the New Testament, particularly the letters of Paul, we often forget that Paul wasn't some guy in an office at a desk somewhere that was just like busting people for doing the wrong things, that he was just hearing all this stuff and writing them a letter like, you better stop or I'm going to come, you know, chastise you in person. Paul, Paul knew these people. These are people that Paul had been on the ground with, that he had shared the good news of Jesus with. He'd seen them come to faith and he loves the, the people of Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's, that's the way he thinks about them, as a father thinks about his children. And of course, that involves correction and guidance, but ultimately it's driven by love. 1 Corinthians is driven by love. He's not their boss. He's not their taskmaster. He's not their principal. He is their pastor. He is their father in the faith. Ultimately, the reason Paul wrote this letter to this church community in Corinth is because of the beauty of the gospel, because of the beauty of the good news 
of Jesus, the, the problems that they're facing, the, the, the divisions that they're experiencing, the dysfunctions in their, their community, they can all be traced back to, traced back to this um, faulty understanding of the gospel or unbelief in, in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So whenever we face problems as an individual, as, as a community, we need to go back like Paul is doing here, go back to the root of these issues. And this letter is an example of how we can do that. So when it comes to the people that we align ourselves with, right, the leaders that we pledge allegiance to, uh, when it comes to the way we live our lives, our understanding of politics and our understanding of work and our understanding of diversity and gender and sexuality and marriage and singleness and conflict and any other controversial issue that you can think of, we need to, to look at the root, we need to trace back the divisions all the way back to the root of the gospel. Who is Jesus? What has he done? Is Jesus the Son of God? Just go back to that very basic root question. Is Jesus the Son of God? Has he come into the world to, to live a perfect life and died on a cross for our sin and was raised from death on the third day? Did he do those things? Did he conquer sin? Did he conquer death? Did he conquer evil? If we believe that's who he is, he's the son of God, if we believe that he's done those things, then our lives, every single part of our lives should be shaped and formed and should reflect that reality. And that's the heart of Paul's letter to say, that because that's true and because they believe that together, they should be knit in unity by that reality, by this truth that he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He's not talking about some kind of flimsy, shallow unity where we just kind of agree to disagree. That's not what he's calling us to. He's not calling us to a shallow hope that we can just sort of get along because we're all humans, right? Paul, Paul is talking about real unity, a kind of united faith that is rooted in the truth of the gospel, the reality. This is who Jesus is. This is what he has accomplished because he is our Savior and King. The things that divide us are ultimately overcome, or they come into, uh, they have to bow the knee to Jesus because Jesus has given himself for us. We're brought together. We're given a new family. We're given a new community and a new life and a new hope and a totally new understanding of who we are individually and as a community. We also need to remember that this is not a bland call to uniformity, right? Like everybody look the same, think the same, listen to the same music and, and just think about everything the same way. And this is often what we feel like Christianity is, right? Like, okay, I just sort of chuck everything and just, you know, take, take in this bland uniformity where everything 
looks the same. We're united in Christ, but we don't all become the same thing in Christ, right? This, this letter is actually a celebration of the diversity of the city of Corinth and the diversity of the body of Jesus. Uh, the real problem in Corinth is that these different factions, these different people, the way they're gifted, and, the, and some of them are very faulty understandings of the gospel, but not all of them are incorrect uh, or 100% incorrect, right? Paul's saying there's an immaturity here, and what you really need is these different factions are all saying you have to become just like us. You have to do this or nothing, right? You have to be 100% believing this way. You have to, your life has to look like this, or you're not a Christian. You're not, you have to follow this person specifically in the way they teach about Jesus. Paul writes this letter to say, you are all united in Jesus. And the differences that you have, he's telling them, these political, racial, economical, social, cultural differences, they all need to ultimately bow the knee to Jesus, but they don't, they don't completely go away. They actually become part of our unity in Jesus. So the diversity of the church of Jesus is actually one of the most incredible displays of the gospel. Not that we're all the same, but that in our diversity, we're united in our faith in Jesus. And that's what we should fight for. Not against each other, but for one another, for our diversity. So we've learned about who the Corinthian people are, and we've learned about why Paul wrote this letter to them. Finally, let's end with this question. What should we expect to learn from this letter we call 1 Corinthians? We should expect to see Jesus. You should expect to see Jesus. As with all of the Bible, 1 Corinthians is all about Jesus. Ultimately, this book is not about controversial issues. It's not about how to, how to live a better life. It's not about how to understand what your spiritual gifts are. It's not about any of those things, ultimately. It's about helping us see the beauty and the glory and the supremacy of Jesus. And 1 Corinthians will help us find joy and delight in Jesus for who he is and to follow him more faithfully. The more we see him, the more we enjoy him, the more we delight ourselves in him, the more faithfully we're able to follow him. It's not about just bearing down and doing it. It's, it's, it's having our hearts change and transform to love Jesus. So, so look for Jesus as we walk through 1 Corinthians and ask Jesus, show yourself to me. Show yourself to me as we learn together. Show yourself to me. Reveal yourself to me and expect to see Jesus. Next, you should expect to see yourself. You should expect to see yourself. And, you know, we're going to see a lot of different issues brought up in 1 Corinthians. And some of them will seem completely irrelevant, right? Like, none of you that, that have talked to me anyway have had a problem with eating food sacrificed to idols. It's not a big issue within our own church community. Um, head coverings. Uh, not, you know, women wearing head coverings, not uh, a particular controversy in our church community. 
Uh, and, and so some of these things will be like, what, how do we even translate that to our own lives? So what we need to see, as with all of the scripture, what are the principles behind these issues? What's really the fueling the division between these people within the church community because those principles and those heart issues, they still exist today. They're in our church community and we have to recognize that. So we should expect to see ourselves. So I want to challenge you to try and see yourself inside of these issues that the Corinthian church is facing. The people that are receiving this letter, they have a problem with immaturity. They're arrogant. They're proud. They think they know better than Paul in many ways. And they're steeped in their surrounding culture, right? They, they're more influenced by the culture around them than they are by the gospel. And that, that defines who we are as, as the church of Jesus in Eureka and in America. We are very steeped in our culture and we're more defined oftentimes not by the gospel but by the culture around us. And the culture in Corinth is, was obsessed with self-image and pleasure and greed and ambition and power and personal rights. And you can see yourself in that. I can see myself in that. So we should expect to see ourselves in 1 Corinthians because we're in a very similar position. So look for yourself as we walk through this letter and ask the Holy Spirit, reveal the places in my life that don't reflect that I'm following Jesus, that I've been changed by the gospel. Finally, we should expect to be changed. You should expect to be changed as we spend time in 1 Corinthians. A life of following Jesus, walking in the way of Jesus, is all about our lives being reshaped and reformed and then reshaped more and reformed more so that we look more and more like Jesus. That's, that's what it's all about. And in the midst of our busy, distracted, often painful lives, this letter is just a call. Be faithful to Jesus. Walk with him. Keep, keep your life being, let it be reformed and reshaped continually again and again to follow Jesus the, the challenge to grow as we follow Jesus, to be transformed, to be changed, it's a timeless call. It doesn't matter if it was written 2,000 years ago. The call is timeless, and we need to hear it today just as much as the church in Corinth heard it in this letter. So live distinctly as a follower of Jesus in the midst of your world, in the midst of your culture. And here's, here's the beautiful thing that the most powerful way to live distinctly in our culture today, I'm convinced of this, is in community. That, that when we live faithfully following Jesus together, it's an incredible testimony of the gospel because so many people are divided. Right? People can't even hang out with their families because they, they're divided Right? How many of you have seen that, have experienced it, where you're just like, I don't want to spend time with people that I love because it's going to be hard. It's going to be a fight for so many different reasons. We're following Jesus together as a church, as a, as a family. And when we do that and people see that, it's an incredible witness 
Not that we're all the same, but that we're united in following Jesus together. And so, for you, ask Jesus. Reveal where your life and where our church needs to change and ask him for the grace and the courage to make those changes. And I'll finish with going back to what Paul says in in chapter one, verse nine. This is our hope. God is faithful. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we cast ourselves on you, knowing our own weaknesses, our own tendencies, our own desires to be united with other causes and with other, other, other calls, other things that are more, seem more exciting and more, um, more productive, more pleasurable. We, we unite ourselves and align ourselves with these things so often, and yet you are faithful. So we ask for you to help us become a faithful, united church in Jesus. You're so good to, to call us back to who you are and what you've done for us and to, to show us the new reality of our lives now. And I pray for us individually, as gospel communities, as a church family, that we, we, would, we would grow in this and we would see transformation. Father, would you, would you do an incredible work in us as a church as we walk through this letter together? We entrust ourselves to you and we thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you have done for us. In your name we pray, amen.